What's the name of your podcast? Psychosis. Like, psychosis, because we're sisters. Welcome to Psychosis. I'm Kimberly. I'm Mary. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to our intro pod, we suggest going back and taking a quick listen. It will explain who we are and what this podcast is going to be all about. This is our first hometown murder podcast of a three-episode series. So we will be doing cases um, from where we currently live, and today's case is going to be from where we grew up. Today, we are bringing you the Gypsy Hill Killings, which occurred in San Mateo County in the Bay Area, California. I, Kimberly, will be covering this first case for you, and my sister, Mary, knows a little bit about this case, but she's going to be listening along just with you and putting her input in. I don't know that much about this case. Yeah, I actually thought I knew a lot more about it until I started doing research, and I was actually really shocked. So as I talk about it, she can throw her input in and all of that fun stuff. So the Gypsy Hill Killings is a series of five murders of young women and girls in San Mateo County, California during the early months of 1976. This is a wild case with a lot of twists and turns, which I will be getting into more towards the end of the podcast when we get into suspects and convictions. There are five victims who became known as part of the Gypsy Hill killings. And then there is a list of other possible victims that I will be mentioning. One person has been convicted for two of these crimes and is serving time. But before I get started, I just want to say that it has been proven that there were at least two different perpetrators, which I will, again, be getting into a little bit later on. And if you are listening to this and you were living in San Mateo County um, during the time that this was all occurring, the Gypsy Hill Killer was also nicknamed the San Mateo Slasher. So that might be a name that you might recognize over the Gypsy Hill Killer, which became his permanent name. Um, at the time, there was like a lot of slashers, and so they just ended up choosing Gypsy Hill, um, which I will also explain why. The first victim of the Gypsy Hill killer or killers was a girl named Veronica Ronnie Casillo on January 7th, 1976 at 6.10 p.m. 18-year-old Veronica Casillo, who also went by the nickname Ronnie, left her home in the Fairway neighborhood of Pacifica. She was walking to a nearby bus stop and she was on her way to her very first sleepover ever, which honestly broke my heart because she was super excited going to her first sleepover party. And her overnight bag that she had packed for her first sleepover was actually found by a couple who happened to be driving by the bus stop. And it was believed that they had only driven by moments before she was likely abducted. Um, the next day on January 8th, 1976, her body was discovered in a creek on the grounds of the Sharp Park Golf Course in Pacifica. 
She was discovered by 16-year-old David Littman. He found her body while he was walking through the golf course. I'm not sure if he worked there or if he was just like taking a stroll, but I can only imagine that it must have been very traumatic at 16. I mean, at any age to find a body, but when David found Veronica, she was nude and she was discovered on the creek at the third hole. She had been stabbed over 30 times with an eight-inch knife, and she was sexually assaulted. At the time, a person experiencing homelessness was arrested for her murder, but he was released due to lack of evidence. His name was Hussein Richardson. It's not clear why he was arrested. I was unable to, to determine like what why the police even arrested him in the first place, but they ended up finding semen inside of Veronica, and they were able to determine that the person who was responsible for her rape had type O blood. Her friends and family were all interviewed by police, and they all said that they knew nobody who would have had any motive to murder her. A few weeks after Veronica's murder, on January 24th, 1976, 14-year-old Tatiana Blackwell, who went by Tanya, disappeared she was a freshman at Oceana High School and was reported missing after leaving her home in Pacifica to run an errand. She left her home on Heathcliff Drive in Pacifica to walk to 7-Eleven on King Drive in South San Francisco, which we are both very familiar with because we grew up literally right down the street. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Um. This was only a 1.4 mile walk or it should have taken her only eight, 18 minutes for reference. It sounds a lot further than it was, but um, she didn't return home after going to 7-Eleven and that's when she was reported missing. However, at first the police believed that she was a runaway and so they didn't label her as like kidnapped or missing. And it wasn't until five months later on June 6, 1976, when her body was discovered only a mile from her house in a similar state to Veronica's. She was found nude, had been raped, and had been stabbed. She was located off Gypsy Hill Road in Pacifica, which is just under three miles from where the 7-Eleven is located. And this is the route in which his name or their names became associated. So that's how the Gypsy Hill Killer got his name because where her body was located. I never even heard of that area before. I've no, I've never heard of it either, but I looked it up and um her house on Heathcliff was only about a seven minute drive from where we grew up. The next victim is Paula Baxter. She was 17 years old when she went missing on Wednesday evening, February 4th, 1976, after finishing a play rehearsal at Cappuccino High School around 8.15 p.m. This is the high school that I actually did attend, um, and she's the only victim that I ever knew about. A photo of her actually hung in our hallway before it was remodeled, the, the school got remodeled shortly after I left. So I'm not sure if they still have her photo hanging somewhere in the school, but it was hanging in our English hall. And at the time, I had no idea that she was actually a victim of a serial killer. I knew she was a student who had attended um, years before I ever attended there and had passed away. But I honestly did not understand like the significance of it. I just found that was really interesting and obviously hits home because we both went to the same high school. Paula was 
the head majorette for Cappuccino High School band, and she drove a 1972 Chevy Vega station wagon, which was found on a nearby residential street three blocks away from Cappuccino High School, but there was no sign of Paula. Her nude body was found just two days later on February 6th in Millbrae, California, behind the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on Ludman Lane, which is just 0.3 miles away from Cappuccino High School. And when they found her, she had been stabbed four times, sexually assaulted, and hit on the head with a piece of concrete. Paula's killing was forensically linked to Veronica's scientists who were revisiting evidence collected at the scene in 1996 actually connected the two cases and they determined that the DNA came from the same killer. I will be getting into this a little bit later, but I just wanted to put out there that as of 1996 that they knew Veronica and Paula's cases were at least um, committed by the same individual. The fourth victim is Denise Lempe. On April 1st, 1976, 19-year-old Denise of Broadmoor, of the Broadmoor area. I think that's in Daly City. Do you know? Yeah, I think it is Daly City. Okay. Uh, she lived over there. She was known as a kind girl who had a lot of friends and was well-liked by everybody that she met. She worked at Saramonte Mall as a shop girl at the cosmetic case in Mervyn's department store. Do you remember Mervyn's? I do. It wasn't before my time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it existed when I was like super young. On the day of her murder, she had the day off, but her and her friend decided that they wanted to go to the mall just to go shopping and spend time together. She was on the way to her car in the parking lot when she was attacked. Her and her friend actually parked in separate areas, but their plan was to drive back to Denise's house. So they went on their separate w- separate ways, and Denise parked her 1964 silver blue Mustang in a lot near Macy's in the northeast corner of the parking lot, but she never made it to her parents' house. Her parents lived on MacArthur Drive, so like her friend pulled up and she wasn't there. It was just a seven-minute drive from the mall. Denise Lempe's car was found by her friend and a security guard, and the security guard actually happened to be her boyfriend at the time. She was found in the driver's side of her car and had been stabbed approximately 20 times. Police believe the motive was sexual assault and asked the public to come forward if they had any information. Even though the parking lot was well lit and the mall was busy, nobody ended up coming forward, and the police did get a couple tips about two men who I actually sent you their picture yesterday on Messenger just to show you how, like, I'm going to put all of this on our social media if you want to look at the victims and the photos I talk about in this case. But this photo is just, I don't know if it was the Times or what, so funny to me because it's like, how can you possibly get any the, details? The one with the hat? Yeah. Like, what is this This photo? Yeah. It's very, like, I mean, I can't draw, but if this is how I would draw. Yeah, it feels like they took, especially the person on the right from like a cartoon book. Right. The person on the left looks like a person. <laughs> the person yeah. on the right definitely looks like a cartoon. Yeah, it, it's so strange. So this is the photo that the police put out to the public. And they said that these were the men wanted for questioning because apparently this is the description of the men that were seen. Despite this photo 
and any other leads that they got, they left a tip line open and they held interviews with people. They also continued to plead with the public for more information, but her case remained unsolved. Uh, a question. What? Uh, if all of these women were dying that were around the same age, around the same time, did they not at any time think, oh, these could all be connected? I mean, I don't know. You would think that. Especially mm -hmm. since they all seem to be dying in like the same sort of manner. So the same manner. And all of the victims look very similar. They all were known to be, I believe they were all white young females who had brunette hair and they all parted their hair straight down the middle, which I know that serial killers in general usually have a, a type type for lack of a better term but yeah I'm not sure at what point that the police might have made the connection this was also like the early what, mid 70s so like DNA and all that I don't think it really existed yet right right but considering the area we grew up in like mm -hmm. even when we grew up there there were there wasn't like a string of murders happening exactly I just think if it was quiet when we were growing up there, you know, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. been longer, I just feel like it would have been a red flag. Yeah, you would think. Um, the man that was ultimately convicted for Paula and Veronica's murder was the prime suspect in the murder of Denise after he was caught. But it was actually discovered that he was in custody during the time Denise was murdered and that he could not have committed her murder, which is why they believe the Gypsy Hill killings was two separate perpetrators. I don't know if it was a copycat situation because she Denise was also stabbed, which made it seem very similar to Veronica and Paula's murder. And um she was the one that was hit over the head with the rock. Paula, yeah, Paula was stabbed four times, sexually assaulted and hit with a rock. Veronica was stabbed, I believe it was like about 20 times, sexually assaulted as well. And then Denise was stabbed about 20 times and sexually assaulted. So a very similar situation to the other two victims. Um, police did go back through evidence of her murder when do when new DNA technology came out and they were actually able to find blood that they developed into a profile. This DNA matched a man named Leon Melvin Seymour who had a long history of rape, attempted rapes and kidnapping. He was arrested for Denise Lempy's murder. And on November 8th, 2017, he was officially charged based on the DNA evidence that they found at the scene he was due to stand trial in 2020 but as we know covid hit and affected a bunch of trial dates and his trial date was supposed to be in 2021 but as of this recording which is august 16th 2023 i was unable to find any updates and it looks like he's still locked up and his trial hasn't even begun yet for her murder such a long time <laughs> it's insane because it's literally i mean 40 something years and I was, when I was doing research, they were just saying that, you know, a lot of the family of these victims no longer are alive. So, so sad. it's so sad. Carol Booth is the last of the Gypsy Hill victims. And I put as far as we know, because these are just um, the five ones that are associated, but there could be more that 
they haven't connected. She was 26 years old, so she was older than the rest of the victims. But I sent you her photo yesterday as well. She looks a lot younger for her age, and she does fit the profile of being a white female with brown hair parted down the middle. So Denise was reported missing by her husband on March 15th, 1976, and her body was discovered just under two months after her husband reported her missing. She was found in a shallow grave near Coma Creek on Grand Avenue in South San Francisco on May 6th, 1976. Carol was last seen walking from the bus stop on El Camino Real on Aurora Street in South San Francisco towards her home. And she was known to use common shortcuts to get to her house from the bus stop. One of those shortcuts was an area between Kaiser Hospital and Mission Road near the former El Camino driving range. Her body was found in the brush in the same area where she would have taken her shortcut. Her case went cold, but her case has officially been reopened. So nobody yet has been charged or convicted of her murder. So that is the first five victims of the Gypsy Hill killer or killers. But there are two more women who are really important to mention, one of which is going to bring this entire case together. So one of the victims is a woman named Idol M. Friedman. She is a possible sixth victim. She was 21 years old and an employee of an import firm. Her body was found by a coworker who became concerned when she didn't show up for work. She had been murdered, assaulted, and stabbed to death with an eight-inch knife in her apartment at 116 Fairmont Street in San Francisco. Her killer had also strangled her with a lamp cord prior to stabbing her to death. Her nude body was found on her kitchen floor, and San Francisco homicide investigators discovered that the killer also ransacked her apartment in an apparent search for valuables. She was murdered on March 17, 1976, only two days after Carol Lee Booth was reported missing. She looked similar to the five other victims, but her case has never been officially forensically linked to the Gypsy Hill murders. And unlike the other victims, she was murdered in her own house and not abducted while walking outside. The reason that they believe that she might be linked is due to the fact that she was killed in a very similar manner. It's actually assaulted and stabbed with an eight-inch knife, just like Veronica. And the... Gypsy Hill killer was in the San Francisco area at the time because he had just killed Carol Booth. Oh, I feel like that one doesn't sound. That one doesn't sound like it's tied to the rest of it. It doesn't. They just haven't ruled it out, but they also haven't like ruled it fully connected. It just seems interesting. I feel like, I mean, I don't, there wasn't too much on her case, but I feel like it it was probably like a robbery gone wrong type of thing. Or somebody she even knew. I'm not sure. And then the last victim is Michelle Mitchell. She, again, is not a part of the Gypsy Hill Five, but she did have a connection to them, and she's the one who ties this entire case together. She was 19 when she was last seen alive in Reno, Nevada, on February 24th, 1976, when her Volkswagen Beetle broke down at the intersection of 9th Street and Evans Avenue. Witnesses reported seeing someone help push her vehicle into a parking lot across from the UNR Agricultural Building on Evans Street. 
Michelle then crossed the street to the university campus, walked to a phone booth, and she called her mom, Barbara, to come pick her up. When Barbara arrived half an hour later, Michelle was nowhere to be seen. Barbara searched the area and found Michelle's beetle sitting in the parking lot, just like Michelle said, but she couldn't find Michelle. Her mom had this horrible like gut feeling intuition and was filled with anxiety, so she hurried back to the phone booth and called her husband and called the police. Barbara, along with her husband, Edwin, and the police spent hours looking for Michelle. They searched the surrounding neighbors neighborhood but had no luck, and the police brought a sniffer dog but lost the scent right outside of the phone booth. Later that night, an elderly couple living at 333 East 9th Street pulled into their driveway, and when they went to hit the garage door opener to open their garage, their car headlights illuminated the garage's interior and they saw they saw what appeared to be a human body laying there. This obviously startled them, and the couple rushed to um, in to investigate and found the body of a partially clothed woman lying in a prostrate position in a pool of drying blood, and her hands were bound behind her back with twine. They obviously called the police, and when the police got there, they turned the body over and recognized the body to be that of Michelle Mitchell's. The only major wound on Michelle's body was a deep laceration across her neck, and she did not have any defensive wounds. So the police assumed that she was probably taken by surprise by her attacker. And the state of her body indicated she had been in le- she had been left in the garage for a couple hours. So why do they think that the cases are tied? Oh, I'm going to get to all of that. And this is where it gets really twisty and turny you like <laughs> hold on because it's i was reading this and it's just wild it does sound different and it happened in nevada so yeah. in an entirely different state they determined that she had been murdered shortly after her car broke down and shortly after she had called her mom to come pick her up so like her mom got there within 30 minutes so all of this happened very very quickly a cigarette butt was left at the crime scene close to Michelle's body and two shoe prints. So they were able to lift the shoe prints, which they determined to be a men's size nine or nine and a half that they found in the garage. Witness sightings arrived quickly after the murder was publicized. Two witnesses reported that a woman matching Michelle's description walked towards the lot where she left her car and a man emerged and put his arms around her. Several others stated that they saw a man running away from the crime scene around the time that the murder was thought to have occurred and two fraternity brothers at Sigma Alpha Epsilon, who was that fraternity house was just a block away from the Evans house where they found her body claimed that they saw a man walking away from the neighborhood in a hurry. A woman also came forward and said when she was driving down ninth street, she also almost hit a man who sprinted in front of her car. He was apparently covered in blood and was holding one of his hands beneath his jacket. Oh man. Huh? Oh man. I know. So with all of the reported sightings, this obviously gave police and Michelle's family hope that the killer would be found quickly. But unfortunately, that didn't happen, and the case came to a halt. No other credible sightings were reported after this. And basically, Michelle's case went cold until three years later. And this is where it gets insane. 
So three years after Michelle was murdered, a woman named Kathy Woods, who was a psychiatric patient at the Louis at the Louisiana State University Medical Center, and she suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, confessed to murdering a woman named Michelle in Reno, Nevada. I do want to note that while Kathy was at the medical center, she also believed that she was a part of the FBI, claimed she was an FBI agent, and claimed that her mom was trying to poison her. Despite knowing about her history of false statements, her counselor decided to notify the police about the murder confession, which I mean, like, obviously, good call. But at this point, detectives were sent to Louisiana to interview Woods. After the first interview, two more detectives flew down from Reno to interview her again. While I'm not sure how to pronounce this city's name, is I think it's Shreveport. Here we go. Shreveport. Shreveport. Okay. So I do want to say I apologize if I have pronounced any of these names wrong. I did try to Google how to pronounce them before, but I totally forgot how to pronounce this one. So two detectives flew down from Reno and interviewed Woods again while Shreveport police obtained a search warrant and searched Woods's mother's house back where she was from. After two interviews, police had a confession that Woods claimed she had led Michelle into the garage on 9th Street after offering to fix her car for her on the pretext of getting some tools from the garage. So her story was that she led her there. I'm guessing she told her that was her house or something, that that there were tools in the garage. And That totally just gave me chills. Right. (laughs) Woods then made a sexual advance towards Michelle. At least that's what she claimed she did. And Michelle declined. And that's when Woods slashed Michelle's throat. There were many irregularities with her confession. Some being that the interview was for one, never recorded. And the confession was never even signed by Kathy. Kathy was unable to even tell police where she had put the murder weapon because the murder weapon had never been found. She also got the type of car wrong that Michelle was driving. And the hospital said that Kathy wasn't responding to medication correctly, which made her unable to express her thoughts in a linear manner. So everything was going against Michelle. um, Everything was going against Kathy at this point. But it was almost like the police were feeding Kathy information until they got the answers that they wanted. And in 1980, Kathy was extradited to Nevada and stood trial for the murder of Michelle Mitchell. Even though the prosecution had no physical evidence and Woods didn't match any of the eyewitness accounts of that suspicious man that we talked about earlier, remember all of those witnesses who claimed that they saw a man at the crime scene? She clearly didn't match that description. She was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Michelle Mitchell without parole. But with no evidence basically with no evidence. So the jury believed that under no circumstances would an innocent person ever confess to a crime they didn't commit. And that's why they convicted her. But she, wasn't she like institutionalized? She was. So, and made false confessions. So it just doesn't seem like that's the most credible source. It makes zero sense. But you said- 
there was a cigarette butt left at the crime scene and that. Yeah, there was a cigarette butt left at her at the crime scene and there was that men's size shoe. I don't know what size okay. that converts to in women, but they clearly believe that there's no way a person would ever confess to a crime they didn't commit. So the jury found her guilty. That is wild. I, mean, I would assume just there's never been like an appeal. Well, yes. So I will get to that in a second. But also like, I get that this was 1980, but it wasn't that long ago. And it just is like mind blowing to me that beyond a reasonable doubt, right? This is a, there's a lot of doubt here for, in my opinion. Right. That's, that's wild. That's completely insane. So in 2015, after serving 35 years for Michelle's murder at the age of 68, DNA evidence cleared Kathy Woods and Kathy was the longest ever wrongfully imprisoned woman in U.S. history. That's so sad. So sad. So the DNA was that cigarette butt. In 2013, the cases were all reopened after DNA connected to Michelle Mitchell was discovered. DNA technology had obviously advanced by then, and they were able to identify and link her murder to a man named Rodney Halbauer. I'm going to get to him in just a minute, but a little bit more about about Kathy Woods. After her release, she moved to Southern California to stay with family before making a trip back to Shreveport to see her 92-year-old mother who she hadn't seen in three decades. She then moved to an assisted living facility in Washington, where in August of 2021 at 72, she passed away. This is like so sad. It like brings tears to my eyes because she was just. You, that's 30 over 30 years of your life. Mm-hmm. For... And in reading about her, she had been institutionalized, I think, from the time she was 12 or 14. So she was in and out of. I just like people can claim like medical exemption from standing trial. I don't understand how she didn't qualify for anything when she you know, clearly was under medical care her entire life. And they really think she was mentally competent to stand trial. It's the police really just wanted to convict somebody. It seemed like that they were shoving this confession throat. Horrible police work there. But in late 2014, Rodney Halbauer was serving a life sentence in Nevada prison when he was paroled, which led to his immediate extradition to Oregon to serve a separate 15-year sentence. So again, if Kathy Woods wasn't enough of a crazy twist and turn, just get ready for Rodney because he will lead us on even more twists and turns. So in Oregon, it is actually mandatory for all inmates in state prisons to register their DNA with national authorities. But when Rodney Halbauer had been admitted to the Nevada prison, that law didn't did not exist. So his DNA was uploaded to the national database almost 25 years after he first ever entered the correctional system. And they instantly got a hit. His DNA matched semen found on Veronica Casillo's body and Paula Baxter's body. And his DNA matched that cigarette butt left by Michelle Mitchell's body. Oh, wow. So like the case that wasn't like the other ones was in fact by that same person. Exactly. This is how he was linked to their murders. Rodney was a lifelong criminal 
and his first crime was at just nine years old when he was arrested after he smashed all the windows of a house in his hometown of Muskegon, Michigan. Muskegon, Michigan. I think that's how you say it. From there, he literally just spiraled and he spent his entire life in and out of jail, including escaping multiple times, which I will get into. I just don't know how it is possible for somebody to escape jail and prison as much as Ronnie did. He fathered one child while out of jail, but was shortly again arrested for robbery. So he had this pattern of just being arrested, escaping, being arrested and escaping. And it was just a reoccurring cycle of his life. In 1975, he was released from prison after serving time for previous convictions. This was just one year before all the Gypsy Hill killings would take place. In December 1975, so I believe this was one month before the first Gypsy Hill killing, he raped and assaulted a blackjack dealer in Reno. The victim survived, and she identified Rodney Halbauer as the guy who raped her. He was arrested, but he was let out on bail. And what do you think he did when he was on bail? Um, he probably raped and killed somebody. Yep, he fled, and he would remain at large until May of 1976 when he was convicted of rape again and assault, and he was sentenced to life in prison. But it was within that five-month window that he went on his killing spree in San Mateo County. That's so crazy how stuff like that falls through the cracks. Like, he should have been in prison or jail to prevent any of these things from happening. Exactly. But it's mind-blowing that it f- fell through the cracks so many times. It it was so preventable. I just feel like people are in jail for lesser crimes for a longer period of time than I agree. Than someone who's continuously raping women. Yes, I completely agree. In June 1977, he escaped from prison again, and he made the FBI's most wanted list. He managed to elude capture until July when he was found in Michigan attempting to kidnap his daughter. Oh, man. He is just a gem. I feel bad for his daughter. I know. He was sent back to prison where he stayed until he successfully, what do you think he did again? I'm going to go with he escaped. He escaped. He escaped in December, but he was recaptured and he remained in prison for another eight years. In 1986, he somehow managed to escape a maximum security prison in Nevada where he stole a car and decided to drive to Oregon. In Jackson, Oregon, he raped and attempted to murder a woman. That victim luckily survived the attack, and she was able to identify Rodney Halbauer as her attacker. In March 1987, he was sentenced to 15 years to life in Oregon for that crime. Remember, he was still serving time in Nevada for another crime when he escaped. Right. So you're going to prison for life in two different states pretty much he was then extradited back to nevada to complete his original sentence the one he was serving when he escaped and in 2013 i guess when he finished serving the time there he was then extradited to oregon to serve the time for the previous rape and attempted murder and it was this transfer that led to his dna being taken 
and linking him to the Gypsy Hill killings. So although his escape was mind-blowing, had it not been for that escape, he the uh, three cases probably would have remained unsolved. So taking the DNA isn't like a a thing across the board with all prisons because I you feel would like I think it would be. I just feel like so many cases would be solved if you just took every prisoner's DNA. I mean, I'm sure it's probably against some sort of rights, but I mean, if you're going to prison for life for murder. Yeah, you would think, <laughs> I mean, I hope now it is, but you would think either how, I guess there's probably some law protecting prisoners where if they were in prison before this law was in, right. enacted, then maybe they don't have to, but you would think now it would be standard. In September 2018, a jury in San Mateo County deliberated for just one hour and 15 minutes before finding Rodney Howbauer guilty of the murders of Veronica Casillo and Paula Baxter. Sentenced to two life sentences, one for each of the victims. And currently he is awaiting extradition to Nevada to stand trial for the murder of Michelle Mitchell, which his DNA was already linked to her. The murders of Tanya Blackwell, Carol Booth, and Idol Freeman remain unsolved. Police believe at least Blackwell and Booth were also his victims, but of course he has denied any involvement and lack of DNA at their scenes has made it impossible to charge him with their murders. Tanya's brother, so Tatiana Blackwell, that's her full name, but she went by Tanya, he says he feels as though Rodney Halbauer did murder his sister and he wishes that he would just admit to it. Rodney also denied ever murdering Veronica and Paula, who he was ultimately convicted of killing. I guess we can't take his word on it. Can't. <laughs> uh, if anyone has any information on any of these women, especially the ones that were are currently unsolved, you're asked to call the FBI at 415-553-7400, press zero, and then advise in regards to the Gypsy Hill cases. Or you can call the SFPD anonymous tip line at 952-2244. So that is the Gypsy Hill killings plus the two other victims and... It's just crazy that I never heard of this case and we grew up down the street from it. I mean, granted, it was like 10 years before I was born, but still. I know. It's so bizarre. I was trying to want, like think earlier why we never heard about it. And I mean, I know we grew up like in a different time, but it wasn't that long ago. Like we still had access to Google, but I guess we just weren't Googling things like we do now, right? I mean... I wasn't Googling cold cases when I was, <laughs> when I was like 16, 17. No, we on the same street as the 7-Eleven that's on, or like not on the same street, but very close to the, the street. street is basically. Yeah, of the 7-Eleven. So it's just so crazy that they only, like I said, the only victim I had known about was Paula. And that was just because her photo hung at our high school. But again, I didn't know she was, Victim of a serial killer, which is so eerie. So that was the Gypsy Hill Killings. Thank you so much for listening to our first podcast and going down this rabbit hole with us. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at psychosis underscore podcast. 
And send us an email at the psychosis podcast at gmail.com if there is a case you would like us to cover in California. Until next time, bye. Bye.